Right, welcome back then, Tim Davies, Fastship Performance. I'm not going to take a long time on this, guys. I'm looking at about 15 minutes, really, probably not more than that. Uh, I really want to accelerate through these. And I've got another one to get out this week, actually, because March is a month where I'm going to take some time off. And I want the next podcast to tell you why that is the case. All right, it's uh, quite an interesting one. I think you quite like that. But on this one, really, just concentrates on an email that I've been sent by a young lady. And I'll get the email up for you. If you're watching on YouTube, fair enough. How's it all going? But if you're listening on a podcast, this is this is actually meant for podcast, okay? It's just that I've got the uh, camera filming just so you guys can um, join me if you need to on YouTube, fine, uh, because my podcast um, device Scrinton thing was just putting up the audio file to YouTube and it was a bit weird, wasn't it? So this will um, uh, put some kind of film. All right, so I've got a, an email here and I've got a load of emails. Every email I, I do on this, there's probably about 40. My wife reckons there's more, to be honest, but probably 40 emails I get sent and then I probably do one email out to you guys um, and girls out there and stuff. Uh, this email is from a young lady on an air squadron somewhere and she doesn't say. And also, I don't need to know, guys and girls, if you want to write to me. I, I really don't need to know where you are. If you want me to come and speak at your air squadron, yes, that does help if you tell me what air squadron it is because I need to know whether I can get there. I try and marry that up with other activities I'm doing around the UK. Uh, and if I'm if I'm somewhere and I can come and give you a, a talk for the night or a Q&A or something like that, you know I'll do it for you. Of course I will. But um, I need to know where you are. And you have to actually ask as well. I can't. There was another guy recently wrote to me and he said, oh, I expected you to come and speak at our air squadron. I'm like, dude, you have to tell me you want me to. I can't. I, I'm just not going to volunteer for this stuff because I'm busier than a snake and snakes are really busy. Right. This young lady here has uh, an accent. And in fact, her background is I'm just reading through this now whilst I whilst I talk to um, you guys on the camera here and on the podcast and everything. I've gone through this once already. The key really with it, I'm not going to read out the whole thing. And she asked me not to. Uh, uh, she says, please use this. And a lot of you writing in now, this is really cool. I'm seeing a real shift in this collaborative nature of what FJP is, which is awesome. Um, this lady here is saying, please, if you want to use this, it's really cool. Uh, let's have a look. There was a bit down here where she says, um, yeah, no, it's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, no, it's fine. Yeah, oh, it just says, can you keep my anonymity? And Well, of course I can. This, I always do. I always do. Uh, okay, so she's on an air squadron somewhere. I don't even know where the air squadron is. And it's about the accent. I'm sure people out there are understanding of that. We've all got accents. We all come from different places all over the UK. Um, and if you're in other countries as well, you understand. In fact, I had an email recently from an Indian chap. Again, he thought his ethnicity was going to be a problem. Now, I don't want to go too deep into that ethnicity side of things. I would like some, I'd like to get someone on to the podcast to talk about that as well. And there, there is a, a couple of students of mine. But I will say with ethnicity thing, um, very, very small amount. Uh, in the military, actually. And if we look up, you can actually go online, you can work out what percentage your ethnicity is of the UK population. And then you can understand why there is such a low percentage of people um, either flying or in the services. Um, there are some role models out there. And there are some people I know uh, of um, that from ethnic minorities out there that really do a lot of stuff for people that want to join. Um, but don't get me wrong, it's I don't know many people in service of ethnic minorities. In fact, I could find out now exactly freedom information is all out there and stuff. But what I'm saying is when I went through military flying, when I was in flying, there were not many ethnic minorities in the fast jet flying training pipeline, which is what I know about in the last 10 years. Um, the other 
pipelines I don't know about. So rotary and multi-engine, I don't. I'd have to ask my kid brother. He was an instructor in, in multis. Um, I really don't, by the way. If anyone wants to drop stuff in the comments there about how many ethnic minorities. And let's not, let's not, I mean, this is something that's quite interesting as well. I said something recently, and I'm going to talk about this in the next podcast, and it was about women. And a, and a, and a woman came on to this podcast and she uh, in the comments, and she commented on something. In fact, I didn't think it was a podcast. It was a post. And it, it almost made me feel... Uh, my wife joked, she said, oh, you can't comment on women. And she made a joke about it. And I don't want to get to that on this site. That's not what it's about. But better than that, we can comment on these things, okay? Of course we can comment on, uh, of course a man can comment on a woman or a white British male can comment on uh, an Indian guy or a Pakistani guy that wants to join. I can give you an opinion and I want you to give me your opinion as well because we're open and we're mature here and we're not bound by those um, stereotypical normalities that we find out in the Daily Mail and everything else, all right? We're mature when we talk about these things and that's what we're here and that's what we're doing. And if we don't talk about them, then it hides, hides any kind of issues or problems there might be. We're not talking necessarily about ethnicity and I would like to further podcast we're talking about um accents and background now and this is what the email is come out here from uh this young lady and an air squadron and she's saying in it i'll read you some select bits for example she's from a town up north doesn't really specify which one uh she says she's not from a wealthy middle class background she is not from a wealthy middle class background uh, she's up from the northeast. I've got a mate from the northeast. I flew with a lot, actually. He's out in Saudi now. Great guy. He had a pretty strong accent as well. Um, she comes from a working class family. Uh, hasn't had a bad upbringing. Great opportunities. Travelled across the world. Um, and she knows that it's possible to become an RAF pilot from the area she's she's in. Apologies, I've got the email open, which is why it's beeping. And she's saying that she's familiar with a couple of people that she's met at air shows or whatever who also have like strong accents and stuff and, and are from a very similar area that um, she's from. But both these pilots, she says, and she is concentrating on pilots because that's what she wants to do. Both of them came from fairly wealthy middle-class backgrounds. And, oh, she says here they have very little or no accents from the place she comes from. Sorry, I thought she was saying. Uh, and she's saying, actually, I'm assuming they both have had um, elocution lessons. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, maybe that's something to go and do, isn't it? I don't know, really. I must admit. Um, she says, the issue that she finds that most pilots that she's spoken to are from privileged backgrounds with private educations and speak the Queen's English, qualities that she certainly does not have. Now, she goes on to say... Um, I'm not trying to portray that I'm jealous of people who have had a privileged background or who've had private education. I'll stop her there. And I would like to say that I am jealous of people who come from a privileged background or have had private education. And there is nothing wrong with saying that. I am quite jealous, actually. I would love to have done that. I would love to have gone. I recently spoke, well, it wasn't recently, it was last year. I spoke at rugby school uh, over, well, it's in rugby, isn't it? It's over the other side of the country from where I am at the moment. But um fascinated by that you would not believe i'm digressing here i went in i was giving a talk with a, a lady um who was a very senior training captain on 747s for british airways a lovely lady in fact both her kids were at rugby and that's why she was there talking it was part of their their big open day where all the students come and listen to different um different people from different workspaces and they try and work out what career and it was full my, my little cohort was was full there was a guy from the army there as well i believe he was a colonel he was a right lad, awesome guy, really nice guy. There was myself, uh, and then there was this airline girlie as well, a very senior captain. Um, great day, really was. And we got shown around a bit of rugby, and it was brilliant. I mean, if you look at all the sports facilities, you look at what they do. Okay, phenomenally expensive to get sent there, don't get me wrong. 
but I was very, very impressed. And if I had children, I'd do everything I can to put them through something like that because I believe you make some pretty good connections. However, comma, I didn't go to that kind of school, but where we were giving our talk up top was in the economics department and they had quotes on the wall from some of the world's most famous economists and they were kind of contrarian quotes, as it were. They, they weren't quotes you and I would um, necessarily recognise or even think appropriate for that kind of environment. It was really interesting. And when you read these quotes, you think these kids are learning so much more than I ever did at any stage of my education. Guys, I'm sorry I'm reading the email here and I'm not looking to the camera, whatever. It's a podcast, right? You're just, you're just in my crib watching it. So let's not, we're open people, especially on fast jet performance. Let's not pretend that we can't be a little bit jealous of success or privilege. I'm quite jealous of that privilege and I worked very hard with my background to overcome that. Um, and I'll talk to you a bit about my background in a minute. When I shut down this email, because it stops pinging at you. Um, so... I'll turn that down there, energy. That should do it. So uh, let's have a look. She says, she says, instead, I have increasingly been thinking that I have a disadvantage of becoming a pilot because it is immediately clear by where, uh, by my accent, where I'm from. Personally, I think this could be a disadvantage at the Officer Air Crew Selection Centre as it affects my confidence when I'm in that kind of environment and may appear, uh, and I appear to be segregated from the rest. Well, that's interesting now. So we've got something different, haven't we? We've got actual something that's internalised. So I could easily sit here in, or sit on this podcast and say that I've worked with people with as strong an accent as you can imagine um, in aircraft, who they still come across clear, of course, because we understand how we, we, can, um, we can do that. We can learn to do it properly on the radio and things like that. But they have a very strong accent. Now, what this lady's saying is that it affects her confidence. So I might be with one of my, let's call him, I don't know, Big Jim or something. Let's pretend Big Jim was from the north, has a real big accent. Um, I work with Big Jim a lot, let's pretend, and I can understand exactly what Big Jim's saying. Big Jim's on the squadron. Everyone knows Big Jim. Uh, everyone in the jet, whatever, can hear Big Jim and understands what um, what he's saying because we know him and that kind of stuff. you know. And also, most 90% of radio calls are made at a certain time, and you're expecting the reply you get when you make a radio call. So as long as you hear a reply and it's got... Um, it's got inflections within it that are standardised within the word structure that you're you're expecting to hear, then you know you've heard the right thing. So accents become less important um, when you're in a close-knit unit, such as a squadron. Either way, what we're finding here is that it's affecting this lady's confidence, and that's what I'm interested in. That's what I'm getting at now. So irrespective of whether I can turn around to her and say, yeah, your, your, your accent's not a problem, it is to her. Now, this is a big issue. Because once it is affecting the confidence, uh, that's what we have to look at because that's what's going to bring her down. So she's going to do what? We spoke about it before. She's going to self-sabotage because she does not believe, she does not believe that she is going to be capable of getting through either the officer air crew selection center or military flying training with an accent like that. There is very little I'm going to be able to do her do to, put, to actually convince her otherwise. So how do we go about this? Well, mentoring's quite good. So obviously if she knew someone that did have an accent and was still flying on the front line, um, that would be pretty good for her, but she's probably never going to find that out. She may be able to look at YouTube videos or something else like that. Or she may be able to, as she said, have elocution lessons so that uh, even though I don't think this is appropriate necessarily, I think it would probably be the best thing for her confidence if she was to look at ways of minimizing the accent that she might have. Now, I would never encourage this genuinely wouldn't the officer air crew selection center now i've never met this girl may listen to her and say you know what 
you've got a very strong accent. We need to do something about that. But they probably wouldn't. They probably understand it's part of her background and it's actually a very difficult thing to change anyway. But what I'm interested in is her having the confidence so that when she's talking in these environments, she's not bringing herself down and self-sabotaging because that is a thing that will stop her getting herself in one of these airplanes and being an awesome uh, warrior on the front line, delivering tangible benefits to the rest of the United Kingdom. Fact. So how do we get into that? Uh, it's a difficult one. I'm going to talk about my background in a minute, by the way, just so um, if you think you got it bad, you can listen to me and um, the mistakes I made. So what this lady says, and she's emailing to me, emailing to ask what's my opinion on this issue. And um, if I've, um, oh, because I've worked with pilots from multiple backgrounds or various backgrounds. She does say here that she understands RF is becoming more diverse and open than ever, but she still feels that RF pilots are not statistically from low income working class backgrounds. Hence, my chances are slim. Oh, that is some sadness right there, isn't it? Isn't that sad that there's actually someone out there? And I find that quite interesting, to be honest with you. I've worked with some people that, well, I didn't come from, I come from work class background. There you go. Um, and, and now I've got, you know, three houses and five cars. And I, I choose when I work. And I'm lucky, I'm, I'm lucky that I can bring a lot of value in individual businesses and stuff. So, but that's not something that, um, and the reason I say that, guys, because I want, I'm not bragging, I couldn't care less. Um, and by the way, I know people with some massive, massive houses and that's not me all right that's not me i've got like a rental and my wife's up in a bungalow and we, we bought a house together we've got four fifths of this house that i'm in right now is mortgaged look look behind me if you're on if you're not on the podcast and you're on the look at these beams this is from the 15th century this house all right so you know there's a lot of money going into this house anyway i'm looking back at the camera now because i finished with the email so what i'm saying is um working class background you can decide to stay in that if you want to and there will always be those people that walk around going i'm working class me i'm working class i'm working class me as a badge of honor and you can do that there's nothing wrong i i'm from portsmouth I, i've got a lot of time for the people of portsmouth i think they're genuine they're real people very very real you're not going to find that's a lot to do with portsmouth being an island you probably don't realize this but you go across hillsy down into portsmouth down the town it can't really expand at all like southampton can um so portsmouth is an island there's three roads in three roads out and uh so everyone's kind of kept together and that has a real kind of together feeling in portsmouth so um my sisters both both my sisters live in Portsmouth. Uh, my mum's up on the hill uh, back in Waterlooville. Um, in fact, so it's just a very sort of together feeling in Portsmouth, a real tribe, and I really like that. So I'm quite proud of where I come from. Um, and I, you know, I used to play rugby down in Portsmouth for the the second and third and fourth teams down there and stuff. So I I, I like Portsmouth a lot. So I would never pretend to come from somewhere else. That's the thing. Um, in fact, my background, as I said, speaking about this young lady here, and this is actually quite sad that she feels that a low-income low working-class background means that she will not be eligible for some reason in order... She, that she can't possibly... I don't know why you, all of a sudden... I think I do, actually. I think I know why people think that you have to come from privileged backgrounds to um, uh, to fly airplanes in the Royal Air Force, and that's because you do get people, especially senior military, who have got very cut-glass accents. And I, well, here's one right now. So Mike Wigston, uh, he was a boss of mine on 12 Squadron, 12 Squadron jet. I'm not looking at my webcam. Let me get my webcam up just because I don't have to look over my shoulder. Here we go. So this jet here, watch my finger. If you're on a, if you're on a, that jet up there, this is the one my finger's pointing to. It's pointing to a Tornado GL4 from 12 Squadron. Um, Mike Wigston, who's going to be the new Chief of Air Staff uh, after Stephen Hillier, is going to be sworn in pretty soon. Don't know when that is. He was the boss of that squadron. Um, 
yeah, he's a very well-spoken guy, but he also, he came from Oxbridge. He went to Oriel College in Oxbridge. I think it's how you pronounce it, Oriel. Um, he's got an Oxbridge education, crying out loud. I mean, those are the circles that these guys come in and that's fine. I never, I never had that. And yeah, I think it's fantastic. We've got guys that are the best educated we have in the military running the military. What's wrong with that? I got a 2-2 in aerospace engineering out of a polytechnic. It wasn't a poly, it was a new university, University of the West of England. Would I be the best person to run the Air Force? Probably not. Probably not, you know. Um, I didn't have that kind of education. That's fine, you know. And uh, one thing our Air Force or our military doesn't tend to do, unfortunately, and the Americans do this, we don't, um, it tends to not put guys back through education. We don't tend to say, hey, you take a year or two and go do a master's. It's not a normalised process. We do have a couple of guys doing like five years or something, but the Americans do send people back to get masters, I believe. So we, we have this stagnation of education within the service. That's not what I'm talking about here today, by the way. Let's get this email back up again then, shall we? Um, so here we are. Yeah, okay. So low-income working-class backgrounds. Well, I'm not saying I'm from the streets, don't get me wrong, because I'm not. But um, my So I can talk about my low-income family uh, and how I ended up... Oh, this is, oh, is going to cause things when I say the most senior guy in, in military fast yet flying training, because I'll have to ban another friend, if I'm not careful, another one of my men, which is a real shame, actually, but he was being a dick. Right. I uh, We've talked about this before. This I'm sure this girl here, she's on an air squadron, she's done better than me already. Fact. Factually correct. I never got into the air squadron because my grades A-level were too low. So I, I managed to get, I think it was eight GCSEs A to C, and I got a D in English literature. So that was that hit me pretty hard, actually, and I allowed that to hit me pretty hard because why? I was 16 years old. I knew nothing else. Back then, there were not guys like myself. There were not guys, I'm not comparing myself to these people, by the way, but think of like those guys doing the SAS program, um, Gary Vaynerchuk, all these inspirational guys, okay? I'm trying to bring them to you as well because I know people resonate differently to other people. Um, so for example... Um, there's a lot of guys out there that, or girls that will stand in front of a camera and talk to you about some wisdom things. And you might, if I can bring those to um, David Goggins, big running guy, ex-Navy SEAL, he will talk to you about this stuff as well. Back in the day when I was 16, I got a D in English literature. I thought that was the end of the world because now I had eight A to C. I didn't have nine GCSEs. I did, not A to C. Does that make sense? That hit me real hard. So I went into my A-levels and I didn't have much confidence in, my, in doing well in my A-levels. And what happens when you don't have much confidence in doing something, um, basically you, you've, you've drawn that picture up for yourself already. You, you've answered your own question. I'm not very good. And strange enough, I wasn't very good. And I got, uh, I did subjects that didn't really align. I did maths, physics, and history. I, I left the school I was in to go to the local college. I was a bit underconfident, so I didn't really gel with people. Um, I should have stayed at the school and done the sixth form at the school, but I didn't. I wanted to get away. A lot of people do that. I ended up with... So I did maths, physics, and history. I ended up with two E's and an N. And I think the N, I can't remember what they were in 20 years ago, guys. So I think the N was in, does, does it matter? One of them was an N. I don't know which one it was. And I did Russian GCC at the time, which was an absolute nightmare. And I, I didn't do well in that either. I can't remember what I got on that, like a D, and I've forgotten it all now and stuff, you know. But either way, I was a bit overloaded, and, it, and I was I was busy. And you get to new places, you want to fit in with the people, and everyone's smoking like drugs or whatever. And I kind of got into the kind of, not smoking drugs, but those kind of parties and that kind of stuff. I didn't really pay much attention to um, the education side of things. So here I am then, 18 years old. Um, I've got two E's and an N at A-level, and everyone's telling me to retake my A-levels. And I'm going to retake my A-levels at a place I didn't really want to be at anyway. Um, it's, you know, I'm, in, I'm in North Portsmouth now. I'm in Waterlooville. 
Uh, I'm at Haven't College, if anyone is down that area. And it's a good college. I just didn't gel with it, you know. So I thought, this is ridiculous. And I wanted to get into the military because I was in air cadets and everything else. So I uh, decided, I phoned up all the universities and I kind of begged just to get in anywhere. And I managed to get on a, an HND, a high national diploma uh, in aerospace manufacturing something engineering, which was a year-long course. And I messed that year up and ended up doing two years and transitioned onto a degree. But during that year uh, of my HND, I tried to get onto the air squadron. The air squadron wouldn't take me because the university air squadrons don't take people who aren't on degree courses. Uh, the officer training corps does. I don't know about the university runover unit. I'm sorry. And I, I don't know whether the officer training corps still does, going back 20 years, guys. So I joined the OTC. I was at the OTC for four years. Um, I did something called the Cameron Patrol for three of those years, or two years I did the Cameron Patrol and taught on it in the last year. And if any of you guys are Cameron guys out there, I've got a couple of silvers on my patrol. Pretty proud of that. And whenever I go back to Bristol University Officer Training Corps, I look at the guys now. Those guys are a lot fitter than we ever are. And we go back in December, we have a meal with those guys. And you know, those guys are getting golds now. So they're putting some massive effort in, which is awesome. So camera patrol, long range reconnaissance patrolling, um, awesome thing. But that's what I did. So then I was in the I was in the army side of things, territorials in, in effect, and I uh, still wanted to fly airplanes. Messing up my HND. I've managed to scrape my HND, get myself onto a degree course, still messing stuff up. Involved in everything else other than academia. Um, my father was a police officer. He was on like 25,000 pounds, I think, and he'd only ever stayed as a police officer. He was an ex Royal Marine. Um, uh, he'd had a very bad accident on special boat service training uh, underneath the HMS Fearless on a rebreather accident, which is a cocktail which burned inside of his lungs. So he had to get medevaced out of the Marines, went into the police force, stayed in the police force for about 30 something years, uh, but stayed as a police constable so he could drive patrol cars. So never, never that well off. A uh, very humble man, died back in 2011. And then my mum was a health visitor. Um, and she went around and looked after new mothers and things like that. So both my mum and my dad, not on massive salaries by any stretch, both public sector workers, all right? The schools we went to, went to a Catholic school. Um, there were other schools around us. I had to fight on the way home every day. I wore a blue tie and a blue shirt. And I used to run in with guys wearing different color clothes from different schools. And I used to fight. Some of those fights, you know, used to break things and stuff. So you, I had that whenever I walked home from school, knowing different, take different routes, different routes, knowing that I might run into someone from King Richard's or Crookhorn or something like that. In fact, Ant Middleton, uh, he was at Waterlooville, apparently. He grew up in Waterlooville as well, so I could run into him. Hence, whilst I was getting like whacked by people who were significantly bigger than me. So, um, so I did that. I was at university then and I got into the degree, managed to struggle through my degree. And the Royal Air Force had told me this point because I'd applied for a sixth form scholarship. I managed to get a flying scholarship from them somehow, which is really cool. Met a good friend of mine on the flying scholarship. But then they told me not to apply to them again. Post-university, they said, don't bother. Don't, we've had a look at you, don't bother. And I was a bit stuck. So I was going to apply to the army. I was looking at a regiment, Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, great regiment, um, looking at them. Uh, and I was also looking at the Royal Marines, uh, but no, the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers couldn't guarantee I could fly. The Army Air Corps I couldn't apply to because um, they just, it was that sort of thing where I was never going to get in. You know how there's some regiments I'm not going to get into. And um, and that was because of the number of people they were taking and everything else. And the Royal Marines weren't flying fixed wing at the time. And I wanted to keep that open. Not that I wanted to fly fixed wing, I wanted to keep fixed wing open. So, and eventually the Royal Marines, when I was at Valley, we did have a couple of Marines come through on fixed wing, which is really cool. So I was stuck. And I looked around and the Navy had a fixed wing capability in the Sea Harrier. And I thought, well, I want to keep it open. So I applied to the Navy. And if you are struggling to apply for the Royal Air Force, maybe have a look at the Navy. That's all I'm saying. I'm a fan, being a Dartmouth graduate, I'm a fan of the Navy. Obviously, I'm a fan of the Royal Air Force as well. Um, it depends what you're into. 
but if you if, you know if you want to go to see you want to see the world want to be something uh, you know bigger than you are right now then i do recommend the navy to a lot of people especially if you're struggling with an entry procedure into the royal air force and don't think you're going to skip the holes necessarily if you join the navy there's a lot of holes in flying training you're going to face those as well in the navy the difference being the navy buy their places so you may get ahead a bit quicker right but my dad, my mum and my dad put four kids through university. So there's my two sisters, my brother and myself. And they put them through university on a very low income. And they took huge sacrifice to do that. So I didn't come from a very good, very good background indeed. I, I really didn't. And uh, I managed to scrape my way into the Navy. And the way I did that, incidentally, if you were interested in it, it's um, I do use terms like committed as opposed to interested. So I went to the Navy first off to the average interview board when I was leaving university and um, I had a choice to make. I'd failed all my education previously. I've said that before and people have come back and said, no, an E at A-level is not a failure. I'm like, shut up, shut up. To me, it's a failure. To you, it's a failure as well. If you leave, if you get two E's and an N at A-level, that's not the same, is it, in getting an A to C grade? We know it's a failure. Stop. There's a lot of pedantry sometimes with some people. Think about what the overarching message is we're trying to give up here. We're trying to give out this message. And what, what I'm saying is I was never academic. And what I'm hearing from a lot of people that write to me is saying they suffer from the same things. And I'm saying, that's all right. We can do something else about it. In the same way, this woman is saying that she has this accent. We can do something about that because it's bringing down her confidence. So I applied to the Navy um, and I got the worst score they'd seen for a long time at the Albany Interview Board. But that's because I prioritized my degree so I eventually realized that without a degree, I was going to be an academic failure forever. And I got a 2-2, and I'm, I'm kind of proud of that, to be honest with you. That's like a working man's degree. Um, you know, I, would like, I was off from a 2-1, not by much, but I got a 2-2. Fine, happy. I am happy with that. I'm blessed that I managed to graduate um, with an aerospace engineering degree as, as a 2-2. Fine, happy. And, uh, but I concentrated on that to make sure I got a degree because my previous education was so bad. But in doing so, I hadn't really read up on the Navy. The Navy saw through my shallow advances to become a military pilot um, wearing Royal Naval wings. And they said, absolutely not. Off you go. We're not interested. And I can't really say that I was too heartbroken. It allowed me to go and work in industry. And I started doing some computer design stuff and I was miserable. And it was six months after um, I'd failed that. They said, go away for a year, Tim. Come back in a year's time. Um, we don't see as much of a team player, which I thought was a bit odd because I'd done the Cambrian stuff and I did the officer training core either, either way, fine. So um, do something about that. And uh, what else do they say? Do some voluntary stuff. Cool. So I, I was a bit hit by the average interview board. So I went away and I did, I joined the Royal Naval Reserve. Yeah. And I went, Portsmouth, Royal Naval Reserve. I joined that immediately. I also went and played rugby for Portsmouth. Um, when you start playing rugby for Portsmouth, it's, it's a hard, anything like that, it's a hard game. There's a lot of you guys play rugby out there. No, you go into a fourth team, it's a brutal game. There's a lot of blood. Um, and then you work out from there as they gain more confidence in you and eventually end up playing for the second team. I don't, I think, I don't think I ever played for the first team, I can't remember. I think I ended up playing for the second team. Anyway, which is cool because I met some old school friends and stuff like that. Then, so I went away and after six months, I did a lot of reading, a lot of learning. Um, and after six months, I said to my dad, this is ridiculous, Dad. What am I going to do? I'm bored as hell out here in Civil World. And he said, oh, I'll phone the Navy up again. Tell them that you'd like to come back early. I said, they're never going to listen to me. What are you talking about? I said, go away for a year. He said, give him a call. I literally gave, the, gave him a call again. And I said, look, I've done everything you said. I'm really serious about this. I'm committed 
to being a pilot in Her Majesty's Royal Navy. I'm not going to let you down. I've, I've joined the Royal Naval Reserve. I'm playing rugby for Portsmouth. I'm doing voluntary work. I've got a job doing computer-aided design up in up in Havant, where he's, you know, you know, I've made amends. I'm doing everything I can. I'm desperate to get in. I, I won't let you down. I promise I won't let you down. They said, yeah, come back. They said, come back. So I did. So six months after they, I had one of the worst scores I'd ever seen, I was back in the average interview board. And that's the thing that I tend to find, and I'm not going to go into details here, guys, about who's more flexible, but the Navy seem to have, I mean, they're a bunch of pirates, right? And that's why we love them. But, um, you know, don't get me wrong. The Navy seem to have this flexibility that might be missing in other... Oh, let's be careful with this, shall we? Because I don't want hate. I've had a lot of hate recently. Uh, I, I like the Navy a lot and the way they do things. I think there's a real mature approach to it. There's a discussion that happens, whereas other services might not have that discussion. And I'm going to leave it at that. That's where I'm leaving it. So I went back, did the average interview board again. And uh, I got a very, very good score on that, on all the leadership tasks and everything else. And uh, they gave me straight away an offer for pilot. And I joined um, in the April intake back in... Oh, was it 97, 98? can't remember. About that end of 90s. Apparently the scores between the, the, the first and the second AIB were, were so big that there was like a record that I held for like, you know, you know five years or whatever is the biggest difference in the scores over that period of time, which is cool. You know, which, which is cool. They told me to go and do something. I did exactly what they said. And then they let me come back and try again. And I got in. I'm a big fan of the Navy and I do a lot to help out the uh, the Royal Naval Careers Office. Um, every guy that, that ever wants to go into the Navy, uh, I believe the Careers Office, they say, come and look at the site and, and read the essays and stuff. And I get a lot of emails from young guys wanting to go, young guys and girls wanting to go into the Navy. Um, and I'm always a big fan. I realize, you know, who gave me that opening when I was uh, when I was down and uh, I'm going to make sure I pay that in spades. In the same way that when I transferred to the Air Force, um, there was a guy who took me from the Navy across to the Air Force when uh, I was coming out of Valley flying training, again, not doing very well in flying training, guys, struggling in phase four fast jet military flying training, which I ended up being an instructor on um, later on, of course, and uh, being the most senior instructor on that in that phase four flying training. People are going to have a hit at me for that as well. Um, yes, there was a station commander and there was a squadron boss above me. Apart from that, I was the most senior flying instructor, apart from the station commander and the boss. So um, whatever whatever and we can talk about that next podcast because i want to cover that because it has an impact on your mental health when you get so many spears thrown at you all right so i'm going to cover that in the next podcast so stumbled through flying training didn't do very well and then we had the sea harrier was decommissioned 2003 uh, there were about nine of us that were not going to go on to the sea harrier my air combat was poor and my ground attack was much better um and uh the air force turned around to about nine of us and said guys you know you're in our flying training system if you want the the navy has said you can come across to us um, you just have to put Air Force stripes on and be an Air Force officer. So it's kind of hard, really. And I must admit, I was very naval at the time. We all were. And so I went across to the Air Force uh, in order to not have to retread and go through the whole flying training again at the age I was quite late. I was like late 20s. Um, yes, I was. I was 27, I think. Yeah, 27, 28. Um, to go and do helicopter training, which would take another two or three years. So I transferred across. They, they said, whatever, you want to fly um, pretty much. And I said, well, I'll fly tornadoes, please, out of, out of Scotland, because I'd never go and live in Scotland normally, would I? I come from Portsmouth, and it was fantastic. I love it. That was 12 Squadron. And the guy that took me across, the guy who was a poster, who was a squadron leader at the time, when he took me across from Valley, was a guy called Mike Wigston. And Mike Wigston is about to be the chief of air staff, which is uh, which is the funny thing. So he was a guy that convinced me, and he had to convince me because I was obviously a right pain as a young naval officer, not wanting to wear Air Force stripes. So what I'm trying to say here, guys, is I did not have a privileged 
background. I'm not saying woe is me. I, I don't care about that. I couldn't care less. I, I remember someone saying that they don't have a rear view mirror recently. I think I wrote that in one of my essays. And that's a really good thing to have. It's like, if you want to live in the past, that's where you're going to live. And make no bones about that. You can you can walk around every single day. You can t- tell everyone how how bad it is for you and and how and this young guy just wrote an email back to a really nice guy actually a really nice guy was really worried about his ethnicity. Um, I wrote back and said, well, you can keep that if you want. You can have that. That can be your problem. That can be the reason that you did not join the Royal Air Force. That can be the reason that you failed to get in because you wrapped yourself up in the fact that you're an ethnic minority. Only 0.7% of your ethnicity are actually in the Royal Air Force right now. You can look up that figure. Wrong. In fact, that's an incorrect figure. I'll tell you that now. I've I've made that up. Um, Only 0.7% of his ethnic minority are, are in the UK. Zero points, less than 1%. He's asking me how much of that was in the Air Force. I have no way of telling. It's a freedom information freedom information request he can put in. He is putting it in. Hopefully he'll find out that. And uh, But don't, don't dwell on that. I said to him, look, don't be a follower with this. You might be the first person of your background to get into the Royal Air Force and to fly helicopters or multi-engine or, or, or fast jets. That might, might, that might have to be you. Well, that is just awesome, isn't it? That you are that forebearer. You're the person that says... I wish there were other people I could get advice from, but there's none. I'm the first person. And you know what? I'm the first person to do this, and there's going to be another guy behind me who's in my position five years down the line that says, I wish there was someone of my ethnic background to be in the Royal Air Force so I could speak to them. And that's going to be me, because I'm going to be that person. And that's what you've got to get in your head. That's what you've got to drive forward for. And this is what this young lady's saying as well. Back to the email. Cleopatra coming at you. If anyone knows where my mouse went, oh, here it is. So, so she's saying that she feel, and I'm going to try and look at the language here. I'm a big fan of language, people. Big fan of taking time to, to get the correct words that you need to use to make, as I'm doing here. Obviously, you can hear me doing this now. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of using the right words. I'm going to talk about this in the next podcast about when you use the wrong words, what happens when you use the incorrect words for the thing and what that can what that can do. So. She says, I'm, I'm not trying to portray that I'm jealous of people who have had a privileged background and who've had a private education. That's fine. I, I think if I sat her opposite me here and I said, if I told her the, the, the level of privilege that these people have and the head start they have, and if I told her about rugby school that I went to speak at, and if I, if I could show her what was written on the walls of this school that every school kid in rugby passes these things and reads these things and subconsciously gets these messages into their head about how good they are and how they're going to take over the world and how they're going to run all the politics of the country. And if I could show her that, I think she'd probably turn around and say that she was jealous. And what I'm saying is that is okay. That is fine. Be jealous of it. Don't make, don't let it make you bitter. That's, that's a waste, but be jealous of it. Yeah. There are some people out there that have a better opportunity than you. What I've done since I've come out of the Air Force, um, I realized I never had that background. My wife did. So I was quite I was quite jealous of all the stuff that she had. <laughs> I was like, wow, what do you mean you went rowing when, you know, you, you're up at seven in the morning and you were rowing on a river? What's that like with the mist on the river? That's crazy. What's that like to, to go rowing like at seven in the morning? And she said, oh yeah. And then we did. And then uh, about um, after school, about seven o'clock in the evening, we also went back rowing again. And we, we built these crews and we got on our rowing boats and we rowed up and down the river and we did races and went to regattas and everything. I was like, that's incredible. So you come out of the military, you get a bit of money. And I was like, right, I want, to, I want to build that education for myself that I never had, either through neglect or through the fact that I, I didn't have that privilege, and that's fine. And so I joined a rowing club. 
Uh, and now I'm the chairman of that rowing club because I worked hard over the last, well, how long have I been out of the Air Force now? I, I left the Air Force in June last year. That's not long. That's not long. So within eight months uh, of working hard, I, I become a chairman of, of, the, of a rowing club that has the second biggest regatta after Henley-on-Thames in the UK. I run that regatta. Uh, we're redoing all, well, I'm redoing um, all the club frontage. We're getting signage up. We're redoing the kit for everyone, the juniors in this club. I'm not telling you what club it is. I don't want you to come down killing me or nothing, um, sending, you, sending you hit squads. But this is a very, very strong junior and, and senior rowing club, junior rowing club especially. And so we're, we're, I'm doing lots of things for that club. So I'm picking up the things I missed on out on in life because now I have the money to be able to go and do that. So I play, like if you're in a golf club, you pay a few hundred pounds a year and you get to you row like you would play golf and this kind of stuff. So what I'm saying is I am jealous of those things. I'm doing something about it. And that's what I'm saying to her. Be jealous, do something about it, okay? Get the education, get the background you never had. So she's thinking that she's disadvantaged about becoming a pilot because it is immediately clear by her accent where she's from. And that's, so can you hear the language that's being used there? And I want you, when you're driving in your cars or you're in the gym listening to what I'm saying now, this is this is to do with pilot mentality right now. This is, pilots don't do this. Pilots don't do this. And this young lady's doing this. Um, so she's increasingly been thinking that she is disadvantaged um, of becoming a pilot because it is immediately clear by my accident where I'm from. So what's she doing? How are other people affecting her? She's allowing other people. Remember I said back in a podcast, I said, I swore, didn't I? I'm sorry about that. I said, you know, don't pay attention to everyone else. You know, F everyone else. Don't worry about what everyone else is thinking. The next podcast, I'll tell you why that works well, but how it's been impacting me in a kind of negative sense. But um, there may be no one actually thinking bad things about her because of an accent. Who does that, by the way? I don't know anyone that, that thinks that. Maybe we have prejudices and biases, and we do, in fact, have those. Um, but she can allow that to get to her or not, right? So... She's thinking whenever she speaks, this is how bad this is. Whenever she speaks, she's thinking that people are looking down on her. Now, without her curing that somehow, without her dealing with that, that is going to be something that's going to be there for a long time. She needs to do something about that. Whether she does it on a in a mental state or whether she does it somewhere else. What's that, 38 minutes? Oh, this is ridiculous. Right, we have to wrap this up, wrap this up. Um, this needs to be, it needs to be something she needs to work at. What I would do is I would literally have a think about you know what you want to be known for i want I'll have a think about whether this really is a big issue um i'd also admit to yourself what an accent does to you in an environment that you need to be clear in your communication does that make sense so if you go and listen to some of my flight tapes whatever on youtube you'll hear me especially the one where i'm doing instrument recovery um, I think it's literally called Instrument Recovery. Go and look at it. Uh, I'll try and drop a link, but you know how it is. I'm a bit busy. I'll probably forget. Go on my channel and you'll hear me recovering an aircraft back in the valley. And the comm, it's sharp, it's short. It's a bit colloquial sometimes. You can't really hear what I'm saying. In the same way, you won't be able to hear what this girl's saying. Um, but she knows she needs to be understood. Because of that, she can do something about her dialect, about her accent, to make sure that she is understood. Notice how I can pronounce my words to make sure that they are understood. Now, she can do that. So maybe she could sit there in front of things and she could start practicing that a little bit. I'm not telling her to change how she sounds. What I am telling her to do is to get an appreciation of the fact that she may not possess the exacting clarity that is necessary at this stage to be in an airplane and to communicate on a radio system. 
That doesn't matter. She understands that something can be done about it. If she doesn't understand about it, is to understand it, nothing can be done about it. So it's important that she understands that she may lack that clarity. What that means then is that she's doing the thing where she's um, she's actually debriefing herself. When she goes to the officer aircrew selection centre, she can sit in front of them. And she can say, I understand my accent may be an issue in an environment where clarity is uh, purposeful um, for expeditious communication and everything else. Uh, I've done something about that. I've maybe taken an elocution lesson to help me understand, even though it hasn't changed her, it's helped her understand how her, her voice may be limiting her uh, in the future. And also, oh guys, she's at, she's at an air squadron. Do you think an air squadron would have let that girl in? Do you think they honestly would have let that girl in if they felt that her accent was a problem? And this is what I'm finding. People that are like literally on air squadrons are writing to me saying, I don't think I'm good enough for the Air Force. I'm like, oh, grip it, crying out loud. You're on an air squadron. I didn't even get onto an air squadron. I didn't even get onto an air squadron. My whole journey to being the most senior guy at Bali for whatever, however many years that was, I can't even remember, um... I had to go via the Navy. I mean, that's just taking the piss. I had to go via the Army first. So I had to literally go all the way into an officer training corps, then through the Royal Navy, Dartmouth, uh, Navy flying training, and then into the Air Force, through a tornado squadron, into Valley, through 28 squadron, T1, eventually onto the T2, and eventually I became OC standards, responsible for all the flying training and standards of the biggest fast jet squadron in the Royal Air Force. Stop. All right? Now, that's a journey. If you're starting off on an air squadron, you're doing all right. I'm guaranteeing that now. If you're, if you're actually looking at the camera now and you're not on a podcast, you'll see the eyes of, the drilling eyes into you. I'm saying you are doing all right. I speak at air squadrons a lot. And I, back in the day, I couldn't get onto an air squadron because I was doing an HND, a high national diploma. Um, and I probably still couldn't. Obviously, I don't think you can still, I think you have to be doing a degree. But back in the day, there was the drinking, there was the parties, there's still that. Don't get me wrong. There was a certain arrogance on an air squadron though. And I don't see that arrogance anymore. I see people on an air squadron who are, are really dedicated, hardworking and focused individuals. And I, I, I'm telling you that that's the truth right now. That's what I see. Some really interesting, diverse people, one of which is this young lady here, um, doing some great things. Worrying too much, possibly. If you're on an air squadron and you're flying around in an air squadron doing whatever, your accent's fine, all right? Your accent's fine. If it's affecting your confidence, your accent is not fine. That's the bit you've got to square away because you're not going to get through the officer aircrew selection center or through military flying training if you have a confidence issue. You need to deal with that. So first off, listen to what I'm telling you. Your accent is not a problem if you're on an air squadron already, all right? And it's, from the sounds of things, this lady seems to have a pretty big accent if she's that worried about it from the north. I flew with a guy. Um, I don't think he actually comes out on the tape because no, I, I, I narrate over the tape on one of our flying videos, in fact. But I'm flying with this guy, he's now out in Saudi. Very strong accent, a great friend of mine. Um, not a snag at all. Not a snag at all with understanding him on the radio. So look, I hope I helped a little bit there. I know I've touched on the ethnic minorities. I think we really spoke about um, background here, a little bit about my background. I will do an ethnic minority one, but there is, I'd rather get someone else in. I'd rather get someone who was an ethnic minority here so um, so you could hear from them as well. Else I'm just saying, well, I think this is fine. And of course I get spears thrown at me when I start talking about people who are not me, which is a bit weird. But I'll talk about another podcast, um, probably hopefully tomorrow I'm going to try and put this double podcast out because as I said I want to get out in March quick one then about accents about self-belief uh, and your own limitations of that self-belief I've written about this before self-sabotage we keep talking about this okay and if you're not I know it's difficult if you don't believe in yourself no one is going to believe in yourself you've got to have some ounce of 
Um, if you haven't got confidence, try and get some arrogance in there. It's a balance. You're never going to get it right. You're going to mess it up. I'll tell you a story about how I messed that up when I was a kid, when I was very young, when I was, um, I think, 14, 15, how I messed that up. But either way, you got any emails for me, guys? Whack them in. If I can get a podcast out of it like this one, then I will because it helps me answering something. Um, else I will just write back a few paragraphs to you, okay? I guarantee that. Right, guys, I've got to make a move. 40 minutes, what's going on? Tim Davis, Fast Hit Performance. 